HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hi, welcome to Eat Your Heartland Out. This is Capri Cafaro, your host, and this is a show all about the intersection of food and culture in the American Midwest. We are excited to welcome today James Norton. He is a man of many talents. He is an author uh, of a number of books, which we are going to talk about, and he is also the founder uh, and editor of Heavy Table, uh, which is a um, a super blog and many, many other things uh, coming out of the upper Midwest. Uh, so we want to welcome you, James. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So just a little teaser there on uh, some of the things that you've been up to. But I, I kind of want to start with, you know, once upon a time, your origin story, because you have a pretty interesting, I think, an almost circuitous uh you know, journey to where you are today. Something that I definitely relate to as personally, <laughs> as, as someone who has kind of had a, a very unique winding road from where my career started to where I am now. So tell our listeners a, a bit about, you know, where you started and, and ultimately how that got you where we are today. Yeah, I, I jumped into uh, journalism uh, back around the turn of the millennium, uh, doing hard news, doing actually I was a Middle East news editor for the Christian Science Monitor in Boston. Mm. It does um, not get more hardcore than that, let's be honest, particularly was, at that time in life. Christian Science exci- Monitor, Boston, and yeah, Middle it was, East. It was an ex- it was an exciting uh, exciting period in that region. Although you know that region tends to stay lively, uh, and so yeah, that's that's kind of how I got I got rolling in the journalism business. And uh, uh, four or five years after that, I actually made a jump into radio, and I was working with uh, Al Franken, who later became a senator for the state of Minnesota as he started his radio show in New York City. So I kind of went from, you know, uh, straight news journalism into uh, partisan talk radio, mm-hmm. and then 
the radio show moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul, which brought me into the beautiful upper Midwest part of the, the country. And uh, I started doing some, uh, basically some freelancing in the, the world of food and drink. And as my interest in politics kind of uh, diminished, my interest in the way people uh, eat and drink and talk about all things culinary uh, really, really began to, to spike. And I kind of transitioned my career uh, from hard news into, uh, in, into all things edible. Well, you make me feel less strange, um, having gone <laughs> from a life in public service and government and uh, public policy to, um, you know, a world of, you know, culture uh, and and culinary and, and all of those things that, that you just discussed. Uh, I you Are you a Midwest native? I am. I grew up uh, and went to college in Madison, Wisconsin. So that's, that's what my, I thought. My home city. So, so you have those those Midwestern roots already, and you you know you came back thanks to Al Franken, um, and uh, you know you you got uh, inspired somewhere along the line and, and shifted your focus. What was what if anything really was there um, a specific precipitating moment where you're like you know what this is why I really love the subject of food and drink and culture. Um, you know, was there that one little spark that uh, kind of got you going in a different direction? You know, I think the the really key turning point was starting work on the book, The Master Cheesemakers of Wisconsin. You know, obviously I grew up in Wisconsin. I knew that we had great cheese. I enjoyed a slice of cheese from time to time. Um, <laughs> but it was kind of the, the the process of digging into just how deep these traditions were, just how skillful these makers were, how uh, varied and like widely spread the different traditions were that made me think, oh, this has been here under our noses in plain sight the whole time. But we just don't really recognize that, uh, the, you know, the cheese, the cheese of Wisconsin is such a incredible, internationally recognized, fantastic thing. I think we just we tend to overlook it and they go, oh, Vermont is fancier or California mm-hmm. is bigger or France is the world's best. And um, actually getting on the road and going to these cheese plants, talking to these makers, maybe think, oh, my goodness, there is this incredibly deep, serious food tradition here in the upper Midwest that I didn't really see. And that and that kicked off a number. And we could talk more about this as we go, a number of different explorations into things in Wisconsin, in Minnesota, uh, mm-hmm. beyond where, you know, there's just excellent work being done, often underappreciated, but, you know, as delicious as anything you can eat anywhere uh, on the planet. Absolutely. And I I do want to circle back to that. And I do want to dig deeper into your book about Wisconsin master cheesemakers. But I want to go back into this, you know, concept of how did you start, how did you want to write a book about cheese? I mean, there had to be something um, around you that said, you know, I want to explore this as opposed to, um, you know, what I'm doing now. Now, and I, I recognize that there's, there's sort of two separate things probably going on. One is a, you know, diminishing interest in what you were doing as far as politics, but an increasing interest in this, you know, sort of food and drink and culture world. Um, but, you know, what brought you to the cheese book? Well, the inciting incident was uh, my wife and I, we're taking a uh, cross-country road trip, and we ended up in San Francisco at the Ferry Building. 
and we were at a cheesemonger there and it turned out the cheesemonger was from Minnesota. And so we were talking about Midwestern cheese and she just started chatting with us about the Wisconsin master cheesemaker program and how they yes. take these journeymen or master cheesemakers who already know their stuff, bring them back to an academic environment, train them up even further and give them this sort of master's mark. And uh, my wife, Becca, and I, were, we were so interested in this and so curious about it and so excited about it. And we were driving north up to up to uh, uh, Portland, Oregon after that. And we we're in the car. And I, I don't remember if it was her or I. One of us said, well, wouldn't it be interesting, you know, to meet the people who are so fanatic about cheese that they become professional cheesemakers and then go back and get the certification. And, you know, Becca's a photographer. I'm a writer. So here's this chance for us it's to kind great- of work. Part, it's a great partnership. It's a great partnership. Here's this chance for us to work together and tell this very clearly defined story. And one of the nice things about a clearly defined story, not only does it tell you, it cuts your work out for you, you know what you're doing. Uh, it's easier to pitch. You can take it to a publishing house mm-hmm. as we did and say, hey, here's specifically what we want to do. Here's the the limits of it, the outer extents of it. What do you think? Does this make a good book? Yeah. How long did it take you to assemble and do the research? Uh, I think it was about seven or eight months, and Mm. we did about 7,200 miles of driving on Wisconsin roads. We talked to 42 cheesemakers at 35 different dairy plants. Wow. And we got to basically every part of the the state in in the course of doing the book. So what did you learn on this cheese road trip of yours that turned into a book? Uh, Well, we learned a lot, but uh, one of the things that really struck me is just I didn't fully appreciate that Wisconsin has third, fourth, even fifth generation cheesemakers, uh, mm-hmm. often with ancestry going right back to Germany, Switzerland, or, Swiss, Switzerland or Italy. Uh, and so it's 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 not just people came to Wisconsin, thought cows would be good here. I wonder if we can try to make <laughs> cheese. It's people who, who in their bones knew what they were doing and had traditions that they were tapping into. Uh, another thing that we learned is that there's also tremendous innovation. You know, we, you get yes. to the third and fourth and fifth generation and people start playing with mixed milks and adjunct ingredients and new techniques. And so you've got cheese as traditional as it comes, you know, like really classic cheddars and Limburgers and stuff like that. But you also have cheeses that were invented in Wisconsin, like Colby and Brick. And then these new you know, it's sheep's milk and cow's milk and goat's milk, or it's rubbed uh, with fennel pollen, or it's got stinging nettles mixed into the gouda, like things like that, like just really exciting, interesting things that you don't often find other places. So you've got deep tradition, you've got innovation, and you've got it all going on in one place. And so you, you get out there and start talking to people, and it's just exciting to discover that breadth. And it's also really interesting, particularly the smaller kind of craft cheesemakers, just how multi-talented these people are. They're jacks of all trades or jills of all trades. They do their own plumbing. They do their own electrical work. They drive the truck. I mean, they do everything because if they don't do it, they don't have the margins to survive. So Mm -hmm. they're these incredible hustlers who know dozens of different skills at a deep level. And some of these guys are in their, you know, we met them in their late 50s, early 60s, even late 60s running around on milk trucks, grabbing cheese out of vats, hauling, you know, wheels around. I'm like, I, I don't think I could do that. Like I it just uh, athletic and uh, fireballs of energy and creativity. 
and all fueled by that passion for cheese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing about cheese. It's like it's one of those bottomless pools. It's like wine or mm-hmm. uh, or even beer uh, or uh, you know a number of other different foods where you start to get into it. Bread, for example, you start to explore it. And you're like, oh my gosh, there's no bottom to this. I can always learn more. I can always get a new technique. I can always try a new region or tradition. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't get boring. It's it's infinitely interesting. Is there anything that really surprised you when you met these cheesemakers? Uh, whether it was you know maybe a technique or just a, f- a flavor profile that you never anticipated. Uh, one of the interesting tidbits that I picked up on is a cheese called Ustalipa, which is a, a Finnish cheese that's made in Wisconsin. I, I hadn't heard of it before doing this book but it's actually produced in fairly good quantities. And it's uh, it's called a bread cheese. You can actually put it on hmm. a griddle and, or a grill and sear it, and it won't melt. It so will kind, just of kind of like a halloumi. So like, like, a, a, like, a, like a halloumi, exactly. And in Finland, one of the things they do with it is you'll cut it in a little block, and you'll drop it in your coffee, and it'll sit at the bottom of your coffee and get really soft and release some of that lactose into your coffee. And you Fascinating. Eat the super- yeah, isn't that weird? And then... And you'll eat the little super soft cheese at the end of your cup of coffee. Uh, not not so in Wisconsin. The, the cheese has gone savory. It's gone salty instead of sweet. And it's something that you will grill up before a football game and serve as an appetizer. So in a sense, it's a very traditional Finnish-style cheese, but it's been reinterpreted uh, and reinvented in Wisconsin. And, like, I don't know. It's just a little quirky thing, but it was something I didn't know before, and it was really fun to, to learn That's and neat. to taste. Yeah. I bet. I bet. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I know you have at least one more book that you have written more recently, but before we uh, kind of venture on into that, I want to talk to you about um, one of your major projects that you have been kind of working on and around for almost, you know, almost two decades, uh, and that is Heavy Table. Um, So uh, explain what that is all about and how it got started. So Heavy Table got its start uh, about 2009 uh, as an advertiser-supported blog. Um, I ran it until about 2018 in that format, took a break and got a a food editor job at a magazine called The Growler in St. Paul for about two years. The pandemic popped up, uh, wrecked The Growler, and I restarted Heavy Table as a Patreon-backed newsletter, and that's its current format. Um, over the years, we've published probably about 3 million words uh, about Upper Midwestern food. 
We've had dozens of regular contributors. We've been all over the region, but we're particularly heavy in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro. Sure. And it's just been like a, a, a blank check to explore Upper Midwestern food, tell the stories that really mean the most to, to me and our contributors and our readers, uh, and kind of get beyond the surface of our region. That's That's mm-hmm. been the, the neatest thing about it is we can ask deep questions, do long interviews, and go to places other people don't bother going. Well, I mean, that's definitely aspects that uh, I think drew me to your work um, is that willingness to, you know, dig a little deeper and, um, you know, really highlight some of the uh, the complexities and the gems of the upper Midwest. For folks that aren't necessarily as uh, familiar as, as certainly you or, or may, maybe even me with uh, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and aspects of the Upper Midwest give a little taste, literally and figuratively, <laughs> of um, you know what makes this region unique um, and diverse when it comes to um, what's offered on the table there. I would describe it as kind of a Germanic Scandinavian bedrock of home food, comfort food, folk food mm-hmm. that kind of resonates in the region. And then there's been fine dining here forever, mostly in, you know, typical sort of French inspired continental fashion. And right. that's the stuff that's it's easy to see that I think everybody everybody knows about. What's really exciting here for me, not that that stuff isn't exciting because there actually is really cool aspects to that that stuff I first mentioned. But what's really exciting to me is that we've had these waves of immigration come particularly to the Twin Cities and really change the way people eat and drink. Um, St. Paul University Avenue, particularly, there's an incredible wealth of Southeast Asian food, uh, Hmong, Vietnamese, Cambodian, uh, Thai, Lao, like all this stuff, first generation people cooking for other first generation people um, and just doing like an incredible job. Anthony Bourdain came here and said it was the best Vietnamese food he'd had outside of Vietnam. Um, and I, I haven't that's been saying to something that's saying something. A guy knew where, what he was talking about. Um, there's also an incredible uh, East African diaspora. Mm-hmm. And so Eritrean, Ethiopian, uh, Somali, uh, those restaurants are all over the place and they're available and they're really good. And uh, particularly in East Lake Street here in Minneapolis, there is a, a real a Latin, Mexican, Central American population and you can get incredible tacos here uh uh in in in, in other and you know roast chicken and rice and beans other traditional uh, mexican foods that i think if you you're just coming in for, through the airport and you haven't been here before you would never guess but right. uh there's just a tr- terrific latin food uh and it gets overlooked and it's really on the rise i i i think that one of the things i've been doing with heavy table that i'm excited about is watching uh, immigrant populations, Asian populations, Latin populations get to the second and third generations. And you get mm-hmm. these restaurateurs who come out who have the connection to these authentic eating traditions and super rich, bright flavors. And they're also very savvy about how to market to a general audience. Yes. So you're starting, you're starting to see this like really, I hate to use the word authentic, but like really deep, complex food reaching out to like a broader audience in a more accessible way. And so it's, it's, it's really changing the character of the restaurants around here in a great way. 
Well, and, and I think it's one of these things that once again reflect the fact and the, the power of food to transcend, right? To bring people together, to educate people about, you know, different cultures that they may have not necessarily had uh, exposure to otherwise, and, and bringing down those barriers where, you know, um, and I'm sure that as you mentioned, you know, some of these newer generations, these younger that have been here two, three, four generations now are savvy, you know, to marketing to a general audience, maybe to an even younger audience. And and so you're getting that wider reach. But I think that, you know, when food is one of these ways in which people are, I think, more willing to maybe take some risks, um, you know, learn something about a different culture, taste something different um, that they would never necessarily have a, uh, an opportunity to do in their daily life. But because it's there on offer at a restaurant or a food hall or whatever it might be, um, all of a sudden that's that doorway. That's that, that access point um, to explore new culture and new flavors. Yeah. I mean, I think that's totally right. I think it, and I think if you're particular, if you're in one of these little family owned places uh, on University Avenue or Central Avenue or wherever, like, and you come into that restaurant, you're kind of, you're coming into someone's house, you know, like it, this is a, this is a family that's serving often a lot of their friends or people from towns nearby where they, where they emigrated from. And it's uh, kind of a humbling feeling. And uh, it, it, it really changes you a little bit as a person, as a diner. Uh, it introduces you to new flavors, new cultures, it makes you more comfortable in the world as, at large as well. Absolutely. Which is one of my favorite things about dining adventurously and widely is, you know, I, when I travel internationally, it's it's less intimidating. It's more fun. It's more inviting. No, no question about it. And and I think what we're describing are things, again, that you and I know um, as, um, you know, kind of, uh, I think, uh, to use your words in, in one of our conversations, Midwestern evangelists in, in a certain way, yeah. understanding that, you know, there are these incredible, um, you know, diverse communities all throughout uh, the, the Midwest and and you know, big cities and small towns and, and, you know, they're bringing their different food traditions with them. Um, and uh, you know what, that's exactly what I think you're reflecting is the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, maybe people are thinking, you know, Minnesota is just this, you know, place of kind of Scandinavian smoked fish, uh, maybe, uh, and don't realize that there is an East African diaspora and, uh, you know, an incredible Southeast Asian presence. And and I think that's the benefit of what you're doing um, with the reach of Heavy Table. Yeah. I'm, and it's, it's, I get so frustrated when I read people on either coast, just sort of reducing or overlooking what's going on in the upper Midwest and <clears throat> not understanding kind of the depth of the flavors that are available here and the people who are cooking and eating here. And it's maybe much less uh, prone to overlooking things myself. Like I don't mm -hmm. know anything about the food of Oklahoma. I'm not going to sneer at it. I haven't been there. I don't know. It could be incredible. And I, I think 20 years ago, I'd be like, yeah, there's nothing to eat there. Or like, oh, Kansas has got nothing. Or, you know, I would say right. ignorant, ignorant stuff based on geography. And I don't, I don't do that anymore. And, and again, it's, it's all thanks to food. Now, this brings me to something that um, I wanted you to absolutely tell our listeners about, um, and that is your Feb-skiving tradition, because you, ment you mentioned this to me before, yeah. and it's something that you kind of revel in to bring people from all over the country to experience what you now know about the Midwest. 
Yeah, we're on year, I don't know, 14 or 15 of this. I, sh- I could track it down. It's not super important. But uh, <laughs> not long after moving here, I realized that every February, I get incredibly depressed because it's dark and it's cold and it's miserable. And the winter just seems like it will never die. Like you're just you are in- You are not alone. And, and, you know, I know that people might be listening to this podcast at any time, but right now we are in a bit of a polar vortex as we record. Yeah. So it feels like permanent winter and there's no hope. There's no light. There's no nothing going on. And so my wife and I thought, well, why don't we just throw a really big dinner party called Febgiving? It'll basically be Thanksgiving menu, but copy pasted into the middle of February. And so we did that. And it turns out if you plan a big party like that, you've got to do a lot of like work beforehand and cleaning the house and making the menu and doing the shopping and getting the recipes and inviting the people and all this, you know, Michigas that kind of surrounds it. And suddenly you're busy for weeks before this thing and you're not thinking about how depressed you are and how dark it is. You're excited to see friends and excited to see family and like it's kind of fun. And so we did it, you know, at our house with about 10 or 11 people. And we started having friends come in from out of state. And then we started having friends fly in from both coasts. And now we're up to, I don't know, 25 to 30 people plus a bunch of kids. We rent uh, some geodesic domes out in the suburbs <laughs> and like set up camp for, and have like a three, That's or four awesome. day, three or four day party. Um, and it's this way to reconnect with people that we absolutely love and don't see often enough who come mm-hmm. into Minnesota in February from all, you know, all parts of the country. That's commitment. That it's is commitment. commitment. Well, well, it's on become, all parts. On all parts, because you got to get to Minnesota. Yeah, you know, you're you're braving <laughs> the elements. Um, oh, you know, yeah. as a, as a guest and all those things, and then you know, you and your wife and your family as hosts have a, as you said, a lot of work to do. Oh, it's a it's a it's a huge huge undertaking, and it's so much fun. It's so joyous, and like all this work and all this fussing and planning and menu editing and blah 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 and kid activity programming, etc. Like it's, it's distracting. And so from mid January to, you know, mid February, we are a hundred percent kind of thinking about this and excited about it and busy. And it's turned winter into this thing we look forward to. It's one of the highlights of our entire year. And the summers here uh, are, are gorgeous and wonderful. We love them and we're busy and we're active and like, that's a great thing. But now suddenly winter's become this time that is really precious and awesome too. Well, it sounds like a win-win to me and an absolute blast. And I think maybe inspiring me and, and maybe some of our listeners to try something similar, if not maybe on a smaller scale, but something for folks to look forward to, you know, in these dark, cold winter months for those of us that, you know, are in the Midwest or the Great Lakes or any place that's cold, which apparently seems to be the entirety Everywhere. of the United States yeah. right now. Um <laughs> Now, you mentioned a couple things. You mentioned camp and you mentioned summertime. Now, I know you don't do this anymore, but I wanted you to talk about it anyway, which is Chef Camp Minnesota. Yeah. So for about five iterations, I think over the course of three or four years, uh, me and my business partner, Dave Friedman, who has since moved out of state, which is sort of the the end of this project, would rent an entire uh, YMCA summer camp called Camp Miller, about an hour and a half north of Minneapolis. And we would book four or five really top flight chefs to be instructors and teach something that they know on open fires. So we have big grills and campfires and all kinds of like open fire kind of cooking opportunities. And we would sell tickets. We get, you know, 90 to like 120 people would come up for the whole weekend. And it would just be chef instruction. It would be foraging. 
We would have uh, like a six course dinner on Saturday nights. We'd have a chef led brunch. Um, a couple times we did canoe bars. We'd canoe out into the lake and there'd How be a, fun. Canoe, a canoe there with drinks for you. Uh, we'd burn Swedish torches, which are like logs burning vertically around the giant campfire. And it was so much fun. We had astronomy and fermentation and cooking a whole octopus on the grill and a Pachamaca berry grill and uh, it was a, really a tremendous thing, and it was it was it was really fun to kind of embrace where we are in terms of the chefs being all Minneapolis St. Paul people, and then getting out to the North Woods and like getting out there with uh, the fresh air and the clean water and the, the the fires burning outside. It was just a glorious time. It sounds like it. I mean, again, like you know, I'll, I want to continue to needle you to bring this back, but it sounds like just a great concept. One that I know takes a lot, a lot of work, uh, as well, but one I'm, I'm sure participants get a ton out of, um, when, when it was, when it was going on. So, um, Chef Camp Minnesota, put a pin in it because maybe it'll come back in a, in a different iteration. I mean, you are, uh, you know, such an explorer of everything, you know, in this region and beyond. Uh, and I know that that has, produced another book. You've produced another book. You've written another book. And I'm certainly not going to let you go without talking about that one as well. And it's called Lake Superior Flavors. Um, and I know it probably sounds exactly how it's described, but tell us a little bit more about that book and, and how you um, came to write it. Yeah. So Lake Superior Flavors is another book in collaboration with my wife, Becca. So she did the photography. I did the interviews and writing. It's a kind of a field guide to the food and drink uh, along the circle tour, taking you all the way around Lake yes. Superior. So if you wanted to break that out into regions, it's kind of a story of food on Minnesota's north shore of Lake Superior and then into Ontario, Canada, like Thunder Bay, Thunder and Bay. Sous, all the way to all the way over to Sault Ste. Marie oh, and then wow. down, down through UP, uh, Michigan, and then the south shore of Lake Superior, which is Wisconsin's kind of north coast. Um, that's kind of how it breaks down. And it was really cool. We, we basically, we did the circle tour about two and a half times. We made some other little trips up to kind of do research and we went to restaurants, we met chefs, we went fishing with a herring fisherman in Lake Superior. We met a beekeeper, we went foraging. Um, we kind of, we went, you know, met brewers and vintners and just kind of dug into the people making and celebrating food. Uh, from the region of Lake Superior and tried to figure out what does that mean? What's it about? Uh, what are people eating and why? And it was, uh, it was a blast. It's a, it's, so it's, it's, it's a food book. It's also, it's also a travelogue and it's really, mm-hmm. uh, it's really one of those beautiful parts of the whole country. I think Lake Superior is very under celebrated uh, for how legitimately majestic and, and uh, uh, awe inspiring that it is. I, I, couldn't agree more. There's no question about that. I mean, Lake Superior is beautiful. And I mean, just all the things that you just kind of touched upon at a very high level, so many different beekeepers to brewers, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot to see, a lot to offer going out, you know, obviously on the lake and fishing. How did you identify the subjects that you ultimately featured? Did you stumble upon them or was it research, a little bit of both? It's always a little bit of both. Uh, when I When I work on a trip like this, I have uh, an itinerary that I've developed uh, partially through my own sort of online research, but partially by talking to people I trust in these various places and saying, hey, here's my project. Who should I talk to? And right. usually people say, oh, you got to talk to this person or, oh, she's doing something really cool. Um, and, you know, a lot will line up interviews uh, in every sort of city 
or between cities as available uh, so that we have a, a schedule as we make our as we make our drive. Uh, but then, you know, you just got to try eating at some random place or like, oh, we were in uh, UP, for example, driving through the middle of a forest and like, oh, there's a bakery here in the middle of the forest for no reason. Like, we got to go check it out. So great interview, great bread, like really <laughs> That's weird. That's amazing. Yeah. So you just kind of like you have to be open to what the what the universe is giving you uh, on top of doing some some pre-planning. It's a it's it's definitely it's definitely a mix. I think a, a good travel writer um, you know, has a plan and is not 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 unwilling to abandon it if something inter- more interesting comes along, or maybe total you know disaster and chaos. Any good stories like that where you know I don't know the boat almost sank or uh, you know you guys got snowed in someplace and couldn't get out. Uh, we got we got caught in Canada during Canadian Thanksgiving, which we didn't plan for, oh, uh, and everything yes, was which closed. Is in October for folks that don't know, it's not November. As we did not know, so that was. I mean, it wasn't a disaster, but it was uh, inconvenient and surprising. Uh, I mean, the scariest thing that happened on the trip for me is we went out uh, herring fishing. With this guy Steve Dahl. We didn't know anything about it. It was like, oh, he's going to take us out fishing. Cool. His boat was just like this flat little thing that's like three inches off the lake. Uh, the, the, the life jackets were like pounded flat, 40 years old. Uh, and I don't like the water. I am not a water person. I am not a boat person. So it's like five 30 in the morning. The sun is just coming up over the lake and we're on this tiny little skiff, like heading out into the waves. I'm just like, Oh my God, this is where it ends. Um, you know, that would freak me out too, but it's a good story. Yeah, it was. And it was, I mean, the photography was beautiful. Uh, the interview was good and, you know, I survived, so it's fine. But uh, it was it was uh, more than I bargained for, for sure. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, that is really what it's all about, you know, is uh, not being afraid to take those risks because that's really sometimes where you find uh, the most compelling stuff and uh, obviously uh, timeless memories from uh, <laughs> something that you maybe wouldn't have, have done otherwise. Um, if you weren't on this journey seeking out these stories from these from these individuals and these makers um, in these different ways. Uh, James, this has been such a, a, uh, an exciting conversation for me. Uh, and to hear about all of your work has been inspiring and hopefully inspiring to uh, our listener as, as well. For folks that want to learn more, how do they find your books and how do they find Heavy Table? Yeah, I would just say go to heavytable.com. Uh, or go to patreon.com slash heavy table. Uh, and that's the best way to kind of connect with it. Uh, you can follow at a free level. Uh, if you back us for $5 a month, you get four newsletters, which are pretty substantial newsletters, one every Friday, uh, telling you about food and drink in the upper Midwest. Uh, uh, at the $10 level, it's actually six newsletters. So you can go, you can go heavy on it if you want. Uh, the books are available. I think mostly still available on Amazon. You can find them through my biography uh, at Heavy Table. Um, HeavyTable.com is probably your, your your best starting point to, to catch up on what I've been doing. Awesome. Well, folks, head to HeavyTable.com. We really appreciate your time and, and sharing with us your story, your journey, and your work. This has been so much fun. James Norton, um, Thank you for taking your time to join Eat Your Heartland Out. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been a blast. You've been listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. This episode was produced by me, 
Capri Cafaro. Our audio engineers are Liam Warner and Armin Spengen. Theme music by Jason Shaw. You can learn more about the show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org backslash Eat Your Heartland Out. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.